0: ON TO THE SCIENCE FICTION STORY NUMBER ONE THE NORWEGIAN WRITTEN BY XVILA The sun shined out on the tropical skies of the capital of It was located near the equator, along a thin band of habitation, only extended about 30 degrees north and south, for the Aryans were very sensitive to the temperature. Most of the rest of the planet was untouched wilderness, which made it a popular nature destination for more hardy species in the galactic community. The sun's rays glimmered across the shimmering surface of the Sushi H-9 suborbital airliner as it taxied towards the start of the runway. It was a sleek dark with a delta wings near the rear. The front half was dotted with windows, with the rear half taken up by fuel tanks and humps with two large engines that flanked it inside and blended contours of the fuselage. The craft rolled silently along the electric motors mounted on the landing gear. The ramjets would not be lit until there was time to take off to conserve every possible drop of fuel. True, spaceships that spent all their lives in the void between planets and stars could mount fusion thrusters and were thus spared some of the tyranny of rocket equation. But the energies that they wielded were far too dangerous to be used planet-bound near civilization. Lord knows the Terrans had tried, and even they had eventually concluded that it was too insane of an idea after Mojave City had turned into an irradiated wasteland in an unfortunate accident. After clearing the final taxiway, the craft gracefully turned its nose towards the other end of the runway and came to a stop. The final checklist had been computed, the plane poised ready to leap into the air. A silent permission came over the radio waves with the thunderous roar a great jet sprung to life the compressor in the belly of the plane hungrily gulped air and forced it into the engines to keep the combustion going in the absence of airflow a jet of pure blue flame shot out of the exhausts and the craft jolted into motion each meter per second it gained increased the ram pressure of the engine's intakes, increasing the power and efficiency of the combustion. Within seconds, the nose lifted skywards. The last sound before silence fell over the spaceport was the crack of the Mac thunder as the craft disappeared over accelerating into the sky, heading towards the Anzen on the other side of the planet. Nose high in the air and the craft passed through Mach 2 and the compressor in the belly stopped. Its job now fully taken over by the sheer speed of the craft itself as it pushed through the air. The inlet slid shut and now nothing but the main intakes broke the smooth streaming of the hull. The craft punched through the rapidly thinning air. Yet the increasing speed kept the ram pressure inside the engine constant. Mark 3, Mach 4... A yellow telltale blinked on the cockpit instrument panel. The computer notified the minor 2% thrust imbalance on the left engine. The pilot acknowledged it. It was of no concern. The fly-by-wire systems had already compensated for the differential On the craft continued forward, stable as an arrow. The air turned hypersonic and the shock cone ahead pushed deeper into the engine inlet, the engine management system compensating by adjusting the inlet geometry. The flow was smooth and steady, except for one dent on the left engine, where it turned rough. It was minor, minor enough to fall between the two of the laminar flow sensors that dotted the engine cowling. With the fuel-load lightning and the air thinning, the craft accelerated at tremendous rates. Soon, it would be too high to gather oxygen from the outside air, and it would have to switch to the closed-cycle combustion with an onboard liquid oxygen reserves. Mac 5, Mac 6. The imbalance in the cockpit now read 3.1% and was increasing slowly with each Mac number. The pilot borrowed his brow a little. Mac 7, Mac 8. It increased to 5% and he would have taken action. But it wasn't dangerous until it reached 15%. The pilot never had a chance to. The forces on the inlet are precariously balanced between the air pressure, ram speed, and the laminar boundary flow. The craft entered into silently colder and denser air and the jet stream high into the troposphere. The shock cone in the inlet jumped as the pressure was passed and the computer was just a slight bit too slow to adjust. A rough patch of turbulence on the annulus suddenly spread into a ring enveloping the entire inlet and the shock cone of the air separated from the laminar flow. In a split second, the entire inlet turned into a virtual wall of rushing air. The craft yawed violently, pushing the stalled intake out of the airstream. With the engine completely starved of airflow, the combustion chamber flooded with hydrogen before the computer could shut the injectors down. With the sudden drop in ram pressure, the airflow through the intake normalized in another split second, and a compression-heated wall of air rushed into the combustion chamber. The hydrogen ignited instantly, and in contact with the superheated air, and left the engine turned itself inside out with an uncontrolled explosive deflagration, streaming behind parts and the flame. The craft yawed back, the right engine having lost thrust now as well because it got pushed sideways into the airstream. This time the computer had been on top of things and no fuel was in the combustion chamber once the shock front reattached and the inlet allowed the airflow through. There was no explosion, but the shock front still reverberated through the engine, battering the delicate injectors and sensors. The screens in the cockpit filled with error messages in the angry shade of red, possible as the computer sorted through their fault signal after fault signal in both engines. Flight Aurora three one one had turned into a hypersonic limiter, thirty-five kilometers above the surface of the planet, heading rapidly towards the north polar cap. Ushul stood in Operation Center in Noldurus Search and Rescue Base. Noldurus was the most northern rescue sector on the planet, located at 50 degrees north of the Naldorus Peninsula of the eastern continent. Anywhere north of in you, you were on your own. Ushul looked up at the pad in his hand. It showed the passenger manifest of Flight Aurora 311. 63 Aryans, 8 Kwans, 3 Volfu and a human. Ushul cocked his head. Now, as unusual, the humans were newcomers to the galactic community, and he had never seen one yet. He felt a twinge of sadness for the first one that he'd see would likely be a dead one. He flicked his fingers on the pad and changed the next page, which had the final comm message transcript from 311. Usho glanced through the log. The log followed standard radio protocol, E first, sender last, all the traffic was normal, until about the last 10 minutes in, when Aurora 311 declared an emergency. Pilot at T-plus-306, transitioning to hypersonic, Aurora 311, ATC at T-plus-441, Aurora 311, radar tracking terminated, report passing apiosis. Pilot at T-456, acknowledge tracking terminated, report at APSIS-311. Co-pilot at T-611, emergency, emergency, Aurora-311. Co-pilot at T-3628. Inlet, unstart, severe damage, both engines inoperable, altitude 35 kilometers. APOAPSIS-72 kilometers. estimated downrange 4,900 kilometers. ATC at T plus 640. Acknowledged Aurora 311. Can you give track? Co-pilot at T plus 652. Unable. I am you in stable. ATC at T plus 668. Are you in stable flight? Pilot at T plus 674. Affirm. We have a heavy buffeting and damaged aero surfaces. ATC at T plus 690. Report time to Apsis. Co-pilot at T plus plus six nine eight three seven eight 378 seconds, ATC plus T plus 711, can you reach the Nalders? Pilot at T plus 720, unable to deviate, unreadable, damage to unreadable, ATC at T plus 731, say again, you're passing signal horizon, unknown at T plus 743, unreadable. ATC at T plus 754, Aurora 311, do you read? ATC at T plus 773, Aurora 331, do you read? ATC at T plus 804, Aurora 331, do you read? Pilot at T plus 1082, unreadable abscess unreadable down at unreadable. Pilot at T plus 1101. Partly unreadable, 89 seconds, unreadable. Unknown, at T plus 1126, unreadable. ATC, at T plus 1135, Aurora 311, say again. ATC, at T plus 1202, Aurora three two one one. do you read? ATC, at T plus 1247, Aurora 311, do you read? End of transcript. Ushul then looked up at the large display on the wall. On it was a polar map showing the recorded track of Aurora 311 and the estimated track based on the last reports and the brief contact that they had when they were at the highest point of their trajectory. Most of the polar regions were far beyond radar coverage and out of communications range had they made it high enough that they would have switched to satellites instead of over the horizon radio but the final apoepsis was just barely too low for that Oshall sighed as he stroked his whiskers and the short fur in his face it had been three hours since aurora 301 had radioed their emergency and they only had the bleakest of idea of what the flight might have gone down the lopsided ellipse of the uncertainty was over 500 kilometers wide and almost a thousand long all in the inhospitable northern Tiaga. It would be another five hours until they would have the first satellite imagery in the search area. The Aryan turned to the person standing next to him. Is there no way to narrow down this further? Issa shook his head. I'm afraid not. We received two telemetry pings after the accident, but the violent yaw had exceeded the slew rate of the IMU gyros so that data is no better than their report. From this moment on, their integrated position is garbage in, garbage out. He said as he pointed to a line on Ushul's pad. We think that Captain Enkral said five, eight, nine seconds here. If so, then that seems reasonable time until landing. That gives us a fixed point where we tracking was terminated and times to apoapsis and landing. He saw pointing each point on the map in turn with his finger. What we can't be certain of is the altitude of the apsis. We have a certain minimum, given that we were unable to get the radio call out at all. But they still put a limit on downrange past apsis between 2,500 and 3,500 kilometers. Usher nodded, and Isso continued. Laterally, they can't be more than a degree or two off track. Otherwise, the aero forces would have torn them apart. But with the distance they traveled, even that is several hundred kilometers of uncertainty." Uschel had a sinking feeling in his stomach. There would be no point in getting in search and rescue team in the air without a point to search. There was no way that they could cover the area of almost a million square kilometers. They would have to wait for a satellite imagery to hopefully pinpoint the wreck and all the survivors would almost certainly be dead long before then. It was winter in the northern hemisphere and the temperatures were below freezing. So the survey satellites are our only option. Ushul sighed. Unprotected means surviving time in these conditions is less than two hours and we're already past that. He thought for a moment. If the hull of the Suzy H-9 stayed intact, that'll offer some protection, but it's a space plane and it is designed to shed heat. Esau nodded. And standard procedure would have been to drop the hydrolox tanks before the crash landing to prevent fire, so the fuel cells can't power the cabin heaters either. He turned to Ushul. I wish I could hurry this up more, but the satellites are on non-sun-synchronous orbit. We have to wait for the planets to rotate underneath them." Eshaw turned back to the point of the map. best I can offer is two orbits sooner if we turn the satellites to image at an extreme angle, but I can't promise that the imagery would be useful in any way. He pointed at the edge of the search area. We'll get the first images from here in three and a quarter hours in that case, and we'll have covered the whole area in seven hours. And if the imaging doesn't work, we shall last five and nine and a half hours. The on-screen probability map overlaid on the landing eclipse put the highest probability for the wreck of Aurora 311 on the wrong side of the ellipse. It was almost twenty hours later that the four Skymaster SAR crafts approached the crash site of the Aurora 311. It had taken nine hours until the satellites had revealed the heat bloom in the western quadrant of the search area, but soon after the cold evening air had brought in the weather front and had forced them to wait until the next morning to launch the rescue effort. The radio chatter between the craft was quiet as they flew over the sparse, snow-covered Taiga forest. Everyone knew that this would be the retrieval of body's operation. Finally, the heavy silence was broken by a sharpness of the SAR-3. Picking up a heat signature, heading 38, distance 80 to 90 kilometers, SAR-3. After a few moments came the reply. Acknowledge, signature acquired, SAR-1. Acquired, SAR-2. Acquired, SAR-4. The fleet readjusted heading directly towards the target. Usher sat in the operator's seat of the lead craft, wearing a bright orange full-body thermal suit. He looked up in the FLIR camera output, and on camera in the middle of the cold red wilderness was a bright blue speck in the distance. He cocked his head and the zoom controls. That was odd. The radio and his headset cracked to life. SAR-1, SAR-2, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Usher regarded the image on the screen. That was very odd. The thermal hotspots were showing several hundred degrees. The key is radio transmitter. As they are, you mean that the craft appears to be still on fire. We can't explain that either, as they are one. Standard procedure in the event of a crash landing was to vent the hydrogen and oxygen tanks. There should not have been anything left for the craft that could burn like this. And even if they had vented the tanks for whatever reason, there would be no way that they would have remained burning for this long. After a few moments, showness of SAR-3 piped up. Could it be the forest on fire? SAR-3. As they got closer, the fear cameras could see more details, but they only deepened the mystery. SAR-3, don't think so, doesn't look like it, SAR-2. With the fuselage becoming distinct, they could see that the fire hotspots were underneath the fuselage, but otherwise the fuselage would seem to be the least mostly intact. However, the top was almost as cold as the surrounding snowbanks, as if it was buried in the snow somehow. In the distance, they could see a column of dark smoke. In a few minutes, they got close enough to switch to the visual cameras, and Uschel did so. The fuselage indeed seemed to be buried in snow, but only over the passenger cabin. The wings and the back was free from the snow, apart from the light dusting from the night's snowfall. The smoke was billowing from underneath the fuselage, and occasionally red and yellow flames could be seen licking the underside of the plane near the end of the passenger cabin. The white fuselage was stained black with soot. Hydrogen burned with clear blue flame and left no carbon behind when burned. It, after all, turned into steam when burned. H2O. This made no sense, Uschel stroked his fur deep in thought. As they got closer, Urshul could see that someone had dug a trench alongside the plane, and there was a pile of snow blocking off where the door should have been. Footprints started the ground around the plane and reaching the nearby grove of trees. A few minutes later, the feet of rescue craft were circling the site, their large ducted fans turning into hover mode. Urshul was looking into the turn of his monitor and out the window and surveyed the site, when suddenly he spotted motion. A form stumbled up from the trench in some difficulty. It almost looked like a ball had been given arms and legs. The figure waved at the craft. Ushal keyed the intercom. Natty, rock the craft. The pilot did so as she was instructed, and the large guy master lazily banked left and then right a few times. The figure pushed a wave and then both hands and stood with them looking up. Ushal pinged the two spots on the map and the thermal and Kitty's radio sar2 sar3 land here sar4 continue circling and document everything he then switched back to intercom latty put us down here he pinged the third spot on the map latty swung the Skymaster around and started bringing it down onto the designated spot about a hundred meters down from the space plane she extended a landing gear although she wasn't sure how the snow would carry them as she lowered down, her miniature blizzard whirled around under them as the fans kicked up loose snow. Although she lost sight of the ground, she continued to descent using the ground prox radar scan on her helmet visor. One meter. Half a meter. Zero. Minus ten, point twenty. The expected ground touch light never came on as the snow gave little resistance and the landing gear. Minus thirty. Minus forty. Lattie finally felt resistance as the bedding of the Skymaster touched the snowbank. Vertical speed dropped to zero, and she experimentally reduced the lifting power. The speed remained zero as she finally cut the power, leaving the fans idle. The Skymaster shifted a little as it settled in, but remained stable in the snow. The blizzard outside settled down. The Skymaster was in a shallow crater in the snow, created by the blow from the four lifting fans. Some ways away was a wreck of the space plane, and black smoke still rising up from two fires underneath it. The puffy figure remained waiting for them, standing on the snowbank next to the plane. Ushon unshackled himself from his seat and walked over to the hatch. He dressed the team and the medics in the back compartment with him. "'All right, everyone, medkits only. Leave everything heavy here. We need to ascertain the situation first. We seem to have at least one survivor who is mobile.' Boucher pushed the mask up on thermal suit and his mouth and hood over his head, covering his large ears. It's ten degrees below freezing. Keep your thermal suits at max. Let's go. He pulled the door handle and hatch swung open. It was supposed to form a ramp, but given that the Skymaster had sunk down into the belly of the snow, it simply flopped open onto the ground. Even with his thermal suit, Osho could feel the biting cold immediately on the tiny, unprotected patch of his face around his eyes. Ushu walked over to the edge of the hatch and then gingerly stepped onto the snow. Immediately, he sunk to his shins. He felt the cold of it against his insulation. He took another step and sank into the snow. Each step required great effort as he and his team slowly waddled their way towards the dark plain. The figure at the plane was also coming to meet them, likewise each step sinking into the snow. As they got closer and each other's ushore could see that why the figure looked so plump, they were wearing what must have been a dozen shirts, all layered on top of each other, and several pairs of pants. On their head they had likewise tied several layers of cloth. The face of the creature was reddish pink and appeared to be bare furless skin, except for a patch of coarse fibrous fur lining their chin. Several icicles were hanging off the patch of the fur around the mouth area. It was the human, Uschel recognized. They were a furless species, though some of the males liked to keep a beard, Uschel knew. The human was the last person Uschel would have thought to see out in this climate, for they seemed to be less suited for the cold than his species. At least, he still had his fur, even if it was short. Hello there, the human shouted in extremely accentuated galactic standard. Am I glad to see you? Ushal's group stopped as they were next to the human. Hello, I'm Ushal from the Noldar Search and Rescue. Are you injured? I'm Bjorn Larsen from Earth. I'm okay. They gestured towards the plane, but we have several injured. I did my best to gather some wood and made some fires to try and keep the plane from getting too cold. But we need to hurry. Ushal nodded and grabbed his radio microphone. SAR two, are three, the wreck is safe. Take off and land closer, 50 meters away if you can. We have survivors. I say again, we have survivors. Prepare for evacuations. SAR 4, land as well. Ushal out. The human had turned and was waddling back towards the plane. As the SAR medics followed, I must notice that he seemed to be limping on his right side. Are you sure you're okay? You seem to be limping. The human stopped and glanced at his leg and then glanced behind him. Oh, it's nothing. I banged my shin a little in the crash. Just smarts. Bjorn turned to continue, but Imos placed a hand on his shoulder. Please, let me have a look. The human grunted and stopped. Imos crouched down and pulled out the portable backscatter x ray imager from his medical kit. He unfolded the flex screen and held it up to the human's shin. After looking at it for a moment, he frowned. You appear to have a hairline fracture on your inner shin bone. How much have you been walking on it? Ah, uh, It's nothing. Just where I've had to. The human brushed it off and continued to follow Usho and the rest of the team towards the crashed plane. Imos quickly folded up his imager back into his back and exasperatedly rushed over to the human. At least let me give you something for the pain until we've got you to safety. What's your medicine classification? The human barely slowed down class 5 b-2 analgesics class 5 complex organic molecules b2 acid-based with automatic benzene backbone so that's why they had been briefed to bring the exotic kits with them imos rummaged through the kit as he tried to follow the human in the deep snow it took him most of the way to reach the plane for him to get the correct ampoule from the auto-injector. The human noticed that he was holding the injector and used a hand to pull down the collar of his shirt to expose his neck, and Imos placed the injector on his skin. There was a quiet hiss as the pneumatic atomizer shot the medicine through the human's skin. After that, the human pointed to the base of the mound of the snow that was covering the doorway to the plane. There's the entrance. The makeshift igloo had an entrance near the bottom of it, while in the ditch and below the snow line to keep the cold outside air from entering into the cabin of the plane. The cold air sinks and wouldn't rise to get up into the cabin. Nearby, one of the fires licked the peddy of the plane. Bjorn had collected some thin branches from the grove nearby and had made a bonfire with them, a little ways further away to the entrance to the cargo hold which had to be forced open. Several open suitcases were strewn about, having been rummaged through for any kind of warm clothing in the large enough sizes. Uschel looked around and then faced the human. How many casualties are there? We had at least 12 broken bones, 20 other injuries, 7 dead including both pilots. Bjorn glanced at the front of the plane. The cockpit didn't fare so well. Uschel followed his gaze. The front of the plane was quiet and crumbled. He nodded understandingly. Then he changed the rescue mode. All right, team, let's do the triage and stabilize everyone enough to move them to Skymasters. We'll use two and three for stretcher cases, one and four for walkers. Ushul knelt down and crawled through the igloo's doorway. Inside, it was tall enough to stand, with a tall step going up into the plane's door level. The exit from the igloo was lower than the door to the level to minimize the flow of heat. Ushul mounted the step and entered into the cabin of the plane. Inside, it was quite dim. One half of the windows were covered in snow and insulating the cabin as much as possible. The warm hit Ushul immediately. He glanced at the thermometer and his suit's multi-function display. It wasn't all that hot, but compared to outside, it was a tropical paradise inside the fuselage. The Aryans may not have been comfortable, but they weren't in danger of freezing to death. While Ushel and his team were going through everyone inside, the humans stayed outside to guide the medics from SAR-2 and SAR-3 to the wreck now that they were repositioning their claws closer. The igloo entrance was too small and awkwardly shaped to bring the stretchers inside, so they were prepping them outside as far as they could go before they would dismantle the igloo and expose the inside to the cold outside air. The shoness was setting up a thermal blanket ready on one of the stretchers, and he glanced at the human. How were you able to work the cold like this? And how did you come up with insulating the plane with snow like that to keep it warm? Bjorn helped to hold down the corner of the blanket. Oh, this is nothing. I'm from Norway, Earth. Back home against much colder than this, he shrugged. We're all taught how to survive in the snow. You live in this climate. End of story.